This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. If you've watched and shared Sai's Gangnam-style video, or gone into an unknown restaurant simply because it was full of people and appeared to be popular, you have the basis for understanding what makes things go viral. Wharton Marketing Professor Jonah Berger's new book, Contagious, Why Things Catch On, distills six principles that cause people to talk about and share an idea or product. We're here today with Jonah Berger, Wharton Marketing Professor and author of the new book, Contagious, Why Things Catch On. Jonah, thanks so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. Great. Um, so first of all, this book is all about what makes different products or ideas catch on. So my first question is, what do you think are the biggest misconceptions out there about why things go viral? Uh, I think the easiest place to start would be cats. So if you look online uh, and people say, oh, why do things go viral? Uh, people usually give one of two answers. They say, oh, it's random, it's luck, it's just chance why things go viral, or it's cats. If you look on the web, they're viral cat pictures, so it must be cats that drive things to go viral. Um, that's a great uh, anecdote. Uh, there are definitely some cat things that go popular, but that really doesn't tell us anything about why most things go viral. It doesn't tell us why some cat videos are shared and others aren't, uh, and it doesn't tell us why things that have nothing to do with cats uh, go viral. Uh-huh. It's like uh, noticing that Bill Gates, Bill Cosby, and Bill Clinton all's names start with Bill, and so deciding to name your child Bill because that will make them famous. Um, It's messing up correlation and causation. Uh, And so what the book is all about is teasing apart sort of the luck and random stuff with with science, actually trying to understand what makes people talk about and share things. Right, because it's not a can has viral. Yes. So uh, now in the book, you actually outline a framework of six principles for why things catch on using the acronym of STEPS, which is STEPS with an extra P. Yes, two Ps. Yeah, exactly. Can you describe those for us and discuss how you develop them? So the book talks about the six key steps uh, to driving people to talk and share. Uh, steps is a, uh, an acronym to talk about the different research ideas we have in the book. Uh, and they stand for social currency, which is all about people talking about things uh, to make themselves look good rather than bad. Triggers, uh, which is all about the idea of top of mind, tip of tongue. We talk about things that are on the top of our, our heads. Uh, e is for emotion. When we care, we share. Uh, the more we care about a piece of information or the more we're feeling uh, physiologically aroused, the more likely we pass something on. On. Uh, public, when we can see other people doing something, we're more likely to imitate it. Practical value, basically the idea of news you can use. We share information to help others to make them better off. And finally, stories, uh, or how we share things that are often wrapped up in stories or narratives. Mm-hmm. Now, of these principles, and which do you think, which principle or principles do you think is most difficult for companies or individuals to kind of harness when they're trying to promote a product or an idea or just get something to catch on? I think people often say, well, we have to do something crazy, right? Guerrilla marketing, viral marketing, it's about, I don't know, dressing up people in chicken suits and running down to the subway and handing out $100 bills and do something crazy. That'll get attention. Um, And that's really not the right answer. So it is true that remarkable things get talked about and shared, um, but there's a lot of other drivers of sharing as well. So one big thing we talk about is, is triggers, how cues in the environment remind us of related things and cause us to talk about them. So if I said peanut butter and, 
you might think of jelly. Or if I said cat, you might think of dog. And so peanut butter is basically a little advertisement for jelly. It's not actually there, but it reminds you of that related thing. Um, and so cues in the environment can remind us of products and ideas and make us talk about them more. And so I think companies often don't think about, well, what in the environment is going to remind consumers of my product or idea? Uh, or similarly, you know, emotion. Well, I think companies recognize, hey, if we can get people to feel emotional, we'll get them to talk and share. I think most companies get stuck because they say, well, hold on, our product isn't naturally emotional, right? Or our product isn't naturally remarkable. Well, we just can't do anything about it. Um, and what the book is really about is, is showing both companies and individuals um, that anyone can craft contagious content. It's not about you have to have the right product. You have to think about what makes people talk about and share and then build that into your product or messaging. Any product can be remarkable. Any product can be emotional. If you think about what makes people feel emotion or what makes them think something is remarkable and then build that into your product or idea. Mm -hmm. And now there's actually a great example of this in the book that has to do with blenders. So why don't you tell us yeah. about how the people at Blendtec made blenders fit this, this framework? So I think that's a great example. And you could say, well, you know, new Apple products or hot cars or, you know, exciting uh, Hollywood movies, those are naturally remarkable products. But who would talk about, you know, cement or toilet paper or a household appliance like a refrigerator or a blender? There's nothing remarkable about a blender. Uh, but there's a great example of a company, Blendtec, who actually made a blender video that's gotten over 10 million views. And the set of videos all about blenders has over 150 million views, about the most boring product we can think of, the most mundane thing in the world, a blender. Uh, and what they did is they have a series of videos called Will It Blend, where basically they stick all types of different things in a blender. Uh, and my favorite one, for example, they stick an iPhone in the blender. They actually drop an iPhone in, they close the top, they press the button, and you watch the iPhone get torn up by this really, really strong blender. It gets reduced to shreds, right? Little shards of glass and, uh, and all the other things that make up an iPhone. Lots of smoke. And at the end of the day, it's basically powder. Now, you've never seen a blender tear an iPhone. You've never imagined that a blender could do that to an iPhone. Yet you see it and it's pure remarkability, right? You see that you're so amazed you have to share that with someone else because it's so impressive. And so people share these videos even though they're about a blender. And so I think the point at the end of the day is anyone can craft contagious content, right? Yes, they're selling a blender. Yes, a blender doesn't seem like a remarkable product. But by finding the inner remarkability in their product, they got people to talk and share. Yeah, I mean, I guess what fascinated me about it was that I think it was the marketing director who had been hired, he realized that something that they were doing every day, yeah. testing blenders. So, yeah, so uh, uh, George Wright, new marketing hire, comes into the office. He notices a pile of sawdust on the floor, one of his first days at work. And he says, well, what are we, are we expanding the office? Why is there sawdust on the floor? And his colleague goes, no, the CEO is doing what he does every day, try to break blenders. So the CEO would take two by four pieces of wood, he would take golf balls, he would take Bic lighters, he'd throw them in the blender, and he'd see if the blender was tough enough to withstand the punishment. He wanted to make a really strong blender. And George saw this and said, this is a fantastic idea, this is gonna be a viral home run. He took a $50 marketing budget, not 50 million, not 50,000, but literally $50, bought a white lab coat, some of those goofy glasses you often see people wear when they chop wood or something, and just filmed his CEO doing what the guy was already doing, trying to break blenders with throwing things inside. And they distributed it to their mailing list, they distributed it to others, and it just it caught on like wildfire. People saw it and they had to pass it on and share it with their friends. And so I think it's a great example of it doesn't take a huge marketing budget, it doesn't take a marketing genius, though they are smart marketers, to think about this. What it takes is understanding 
understanding the psychology behind social transmission, what makes us talk about it and share things, and then generating content or building in features of your product so you create that viral user growth. And to kind of go with that on the smaller budgets and also, I guess, to somewhat go back to when you mentioned cats, yeah. it seems like a lot of times, at least on the internet, that a lot of times it's user-generated content that often manages to generate these giant page view numbers and the viral nature that many companies with much larger budgets and many more resources at their disposal would just die to have. Yeah. So, I mean, what do you think about that and what can companies learn from that? You know, so I think companies often think, well, it's about advertising, right? It's about creating a really slick message and putting it out there and it will be really persuasive. And I think it's more about being open, being authentic, uh, letting consumers create their own content, um, but also creating ads that build in an understanding of why people talk about and share things. People don't want to share things that look like ads, right? They don't want to look like they're a walking advertisement for a company. But they will share really engaging content, even if that content happens to relate to a brand. So a few years ago, Burger King had a, a great example on the web, the subservient chicken. Was this website you could go, you could type in whatever you wanted, uh, and this guy in a chicken suit would do whatever you typed in. So do a backflip, the guy in the chicken suit would do a backflip. Hit a home run, he'd look like he's hitting a home run. Um, but it wasn't heavily branded, right? It didn't say Burger King, Burger King, buy Burger King all over the page. The more you brand something, the more it looks like an ad, the less willing people are going to be to talk about and share it. And so I think you need to design content that's like a Trojan horse, right? It's, there's an exterior to it that's really exciting or remarkable, has social currency or practical value, but inside you hide the brand or the benefit, right? Will It Blend is a great example. It's not a highly branded piece of content, right? People are watching it because they love to see this blender tear through things, but along the way they're learning about the brand. If instead they said, buy this blender, it's fantastic, you'll love it, people wouldn't share that with others because it seems like an ad. Mm -hmm. But, but that's not, not just online, online, it also happens offline. So there's a great uh, Philly local example of a restaurant here called Barclay Prime that has a $100 cheesesteak. Now you might sit there and go, $100 cheesesteak? What could be on a $100 cheesesteak? Well, it's everything from Kobe beef to lobster to uh, truffles, comes with a little bottle of champagne, a remarkable product particularly for Philly, where we often think about uh, cheesesteaks. But again, people don't want to seem like an advertisement for Barclay Prime, but they do love to talk about this remarkable product, and along the way, they talk about the brand. And so I think it's about understanding what consumers like to talk about, and then attaching your brand or your idea to a story that they want to share. Mm -hmm. Now, I mean, you note that, I mean, you talked a little bit at the beginning about how a lot of people seem to think that going viral or becoming contagious is a lot about luck, but that, you know, this, these six steps are really what's a lot of what's coming into play. But I mean, for a company trying to harness these six steps, I mean, what kind of issues do you see? I mean, how much do opposing market forces come into play? And what about share luck? I mean, how much does luck have anything to do with it at all, do you think? Yeah, so um, what this book is, is like, imagine you're a baseball player, right? And you're hitting pretty well, uh, but you want to raise your batting average. This book will show you how to raise your viral batting average. So can I guarantee you'll be the next Gangnam Style with a billion views? Definitely not. I can't guarantee that. But I can guarantee that we'll raise the likelihood that consumers talk about and share your ideas. If a person on average tells one person, we can increase it to two. If half the people are talking about your product, we can increase it to 60%. We have evidence-based uh, principles that show why people talk about and share. And so, no, you know, there is some luck to get a billion views, right? You can't mathematically put something together to guarantee that you'll get that many views. There is a snowball effect on the web. But you can guarantee that more people will talk about your brand or more people will share your idea if you understand why people talk and share. Mm -hmm. Now, I mean, how have changes in advertising and the technology landscape altered the nature of how things become contagious and then sort of conversely the reasons or the speed at which they maybe become uncontagious or just kind of peter out? I think, I mean, so advertising are, is great for broad awareness. 
right? It's great because it makes many people aware that your product exists, but it's not very persuasive, right? If we think about it, we're much more likely to believe what our friends say than believe what ads ads say. And so I'm not against advertising. If you have enough money to buy a Super Bowl commercial and that's worth doing on your end, it's definitely worth doing. It gets broad, broad awareness. But it's not going to be very persuasive. What's going to be persuasive is hearing about from a friend or a colleague or someone you know that a product is good. Right? People, 90% of people believe what their friends say. Only about 30% of people believe what ads say. Right? So it's much less likely to believe what, what ads have to add. And so I think what I would recommend to businesses and organizations is advertising is not a bad thing. And indeed, it's one way to encourage word of mouth but also think about why are people going to talk about and share your ads once they've happened? Or how can you build content both online and offline that people will talk and share? I think this conversation is focused a lot on the web, and, and the web is important, but actually much more word of mouth is offline than online. There's been so much focus recently on social media technologies, Twitter and Facebook and the newest shiny new tool that's out there. Uh, but if you think about it, five or six years ago, you, know, you could have been an expert on MySpace. You could have gone to a talk that says, MySpace is where you should spend all your resources and you could have gone after that tool, and now that useful knowledge would be pretty worthless, right? No one's really on MySpace anymore. And so will Facebook be around in 10 years? Will Twitter still be around? I don't know. Will people still be talking and sharing? Certainly. And so it's more about understanding why people talk and share, whether it's online or offline, rather than focusing on the technologies they're sharing through. Mm -hmm. Now, in terms of that, I mean, can you think of, I mean, in the book, I mean, is there a favorite example that you have that was most surprising and maybe one that doesn't necessarily involve word of mouth that specifically was about a viral video or something like that? Uh, so one example I really like is the example of Movember. Uh, so nonprofits have a problem, and that is that most donations to nonprofits are pretty private. You know what you donate to, and uh, you might even know what your spouse donates to or your best friend donates to, but you don't really have any idea what your friends donate to or people at the office donate to. That action is pretty private. Uh, but because it's private, it's hard for that to catch on more broadly, right? If you can't see what others are doing, it's hard to imitate it. Um, so one idea I talk about in the book is making the private public, making it more observable or visible what people are doing. And a favorite example of that is this campaign called Movember. Uh, so a number of years ago in Australia, a couple guys got together. They were drinking beers. Uh, and they were talking, you know, what would be fun to do just as a joke for kicks? They decided to have a mustache growing contest. So they grew their best mustache. It happened to be the month of November, so they called it Movember. The next year, they had so much fun, they wanted to do it again. So they decided to raise money for men's cancer. Uh, there's lots of... Uh, Campaigns for women's cancers, uh, the 5K races, uh, Susan G. Komen Foundation, lots of different things, not so much for men's cancers. So they started to raise money for men's cancers, but they had the really sharp idea of rather than just asking people for money, they used mustaches as a, a public signal of that private behavior. So for the month of November, you'd grow a mustache and you'd ask people to donate money to support the cause uh, for men's cancers. But what's really nice about that behavior, it's a very public behavior, right? It's not just asking people for money. No one can see if someone else is part of it. If someone's part of the campaign, you can see that they have a mustache on their face. So if someone in your office who you know is a pretty buttoned-down uh, sort of guy starts sporting a mustache suddenly in, in the month of November, right? A big Raleigh Fingers sort of uh, mustache. You're going to ask them, why are you doing this, right? What's going on? And that will encourage them to talk about and share this November campaign, which will encourage you to do the same thing either that year or next year. Entirely offline, but public is a really simple way of getting ideas to catch on. It's similar when you think about uh, Apple's headphones, right? So used to be we all carried portable CD players. It was like carrying a pizza. You had to run like this to make sure it didn't skip. Then they came out with these things called MP3 players, really great technology, but they were super expensive. Is it worth adopting this new product? 
well, how do I know if it's worth adopting this new product? And so if you looked around, let's say, on the subway or the bus, and you saw people using the Microsoft product or a product from another company, you couldn't tell because everyone's headphones were black. It was impossible to see what device someone was using as opposed to another device. But what Apple did really smartly is they used white headphones. So once you start seeing a number of people wearing white headphones, you say, wow, a lot of people are using this. It must be really good, which encourages you to adopt that product as well. It's just like if you've gone to a foreign city, you don't know where to eat, how do you decide? You look for a restaurant that's full of people. And so it's a totally offline example, but you assume if it's full of people, it must be really good. And so thinking about how to make the private public, particularly in an offline environment, is a great way to help your product catch on. Great. Jonah, thanks so much for being with us today. No problem. Thanks for having me. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.